There we go. Thank you so much for coming back. <laughs> oh, man. I had a great lunch. Now I'm going to try to stay awake. Again, why I wore the pink shirt. Because it both, it's vibrant. It both wakes you up and me up. I can look down and see it. Um, yeah, we're going to pass on the questions. Uh, I love the questions. And, uh, but I, I just have this sense of there's a landing spot I want to get us to. And we, uh, and we, I'm fixing to get us there. So, um, what we are, if, uh, if, um, let me get my page bearings. What I'd like you to do in your manual is turn to page 40. Let's see. Let's go to page 43. Page 43 starts a section called the economic engine, and we just cracked that open at the end of last session. And the economic engine is the motor you've built, and I drew those little squigglies, those little circles on the wall earlier on the whiteboard. And, and what I was talking about is I was trying to rope in this idea of multiple streams of income. I was trying to rope in and begin to give you now the interaction between the income statement how it feeds the balance sheet, how we put money on the balance sheet, whether we choose to put it into assets like cash or reduced debt. We're going to get through that whole thing and get into some additional pieces about it, which really feel like, I hope, to tie together the plan. You'll have, at the end of today, an aerial view on how to perceive your money, how to kind of look at your finances. Okay, And then uh, I should leave time at the end, I expect to, to talk about some real specific tools and one of them is the debt snowball, which was projected on the wall earlier. And I, um, I will turn that back on when it's time appropriate. And I'll just show you how the debt snowball works. It's a super powerful tool, super easy, and you'll visually see it. And you can build it. You don't need a handout uh, for it. I can just explain it. That's where we're headed. But before we do, we've got to invite that Father God back in the room. Because we are, again, hammering away at the, uh, against the spirit of orphan and trying to learn how to hear and think and get present with this amazing Father God we have. So, Father, we we uh, thank you for a great lunch. Thank you, Lord, that our uh, we feel full and satisfied. And um, and and but I ask God that you would just touch the next couple hours that we spend. I'm asking that you would move into this room. We invite you in, and I ah, I ask you to come in through those door that doorway right now I ask you to move I know you just sense it it's like he we invite you God and we feel you invade this room mm. that's good that's good we just, just just play with that for a while just enjoy that Jesus talked about true riches. And they have the ability to come into the presence of the king. Imagine Esther. And here we are. Here we are in the king's in the king's place. Here we come into the presence of the maker. Oh my goodness. Lord, we just we bow our hearts to you right now. We just acknowledge that you are the you're the most beautiful thing we know. You're better than we can imagine. I pray that our 
our worship right now would rise like an incense. I do. I ask that it would rise and it would, it would be burning. And I pray that you would just lean in and enjoy it. We would bring, bring pleasure to you, God. You are beautiful. Thank you so much, God. Thanks, King. So, Lord, we ask you to wedge in between us in the seats and move the aisles, move about the aisles. And I just pray that we, again, would uh, find ourselves in a little place of heaven here. A little, uh, a little place where you would bring your heaven to earth. I ask that we would get clarity like they have in heaven. And the cloudiness of, of the enemy we bind in Jesus' name on earth as it is in heaven. But the clarity of heaven we loose on earth as it is in heaven. And we dedicate our time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to tear it up. You ready? Very fun. So what I talked about last time was this idea of these two buckets and... I'm drawing one slightly higher with the concept that our net worth is growing. This is the person that suddenly $1,000 of new money came in, right? This new money came in off of their economic motors. It landed. One person, example B, decided, I'm going to, I think he put it in the bank account for an emergency fund. Example C decided, I think I'm going to put it against debt, and she paid off her debt. Both wise moves, whether it's, the best move or not is circumstantial. That means I can't tell you what to do. In fact, I won't tell you what to do. I think this is where you get to be kings and queens. And you get to decide, Lord, I think this, this is a mystery. And I think this is where it should be. And you're asking for God to lead you. So I just want to encourage you to be willing to do that. And, um, but I give you the, the crude, the rough outline of one, two, three, four. One, being discover. Two, being live within your means. Three, being go after your emergency, your building, become the bank and build your emergency fund. And then finally, four, go after debt. And uh, beyond that, it's up to you and the Father to talk. And so the way this $1,000 came in, I said before we left, comes in from this savings box. Now, what I drove, drew up here, living, giving, saving, I have... Um, 100 living, 100% living, giving is zero, saving is zero. I'm thinking this is someone who is living hand to mouth. This is someone who every dollar that comes into their possession is needed in order to just make life happen. So, you know, sometimes I find myself here. Some of us who may be in here do. Um... This is a lot of Americans are living right here at 100 zero, zero. Uh, A lot of people uh, in America are believers, and so they understand this giving thing. So they do a little different. They have a concept of giving. So they have to live on less in order to do that. So the average American, it turns out, is living on about 98% giving 2% 
and saving zero. So that's kind of a rough estimate on where most American Christians are living. That's interesting, huh? You know, we think about uh, we're a generous country. Do you know that we're the most generous country in the world? And uh, what's interesting is that generosity is coming out of this Christian, or at least this, um, I don't, I, you know, I don't want to get into the, the dynamics of this, because it, it is not something that I spend any time thinking about. But, like, you know, the Catholics and the Christians and everybody who gives or generous-based in America where this generosity, this philanthropy, comes into uh, possession of the church, and the church then turns around and it, we see national, international missions and we see, you know, welfare programs through the church. Uh, all of that going on, even as vast as it is, it's being supported by about 2% giving on a small fraction of the, of the United States population. So I think that's kind of an interesting side note, and we'll move over quickly past it, but it's an interesting side note. We hear this language about a kingdom economy, and uh, what is that exactly? Well, I think it's right under our nose. I think in America alone, we've been given, we we live out Deuteronomy 8.18, which says that God has given us the power to create wealth. Okay, We, we are living it out and have been for decades. But out of that, the Christians in that, under that promise, are not giving it. They're hanging on to it or consuming it. And it's illustrated like this. 98% of everything is going to them, and only 2% is going out. The interesting uh, thing is if the Christian church in America alone were to give, these are crude numbers, but approximately 10%, that amount of money each year would dwarf what the federal government spends on all international aid. That includes all military spending. So that's how big the, the kingdom economy is just in the United States. So if we could activate that, which I will confess is an agenda of mine. This is why I sit here and tell you and live it that the priority one is giving. So this is priority one, giving. Priority two is saving, which I'll explain out in a minute. And priority three is live on the rest. So that's really how I navigate this whole thing from now, from now on as I talk. Because like I said, my wife and I were um, some, at some point in our, you know, in our marriage and living along. And we, well, I'll start at the beginning. We were in college. I'll go back to that because we were in a beautiful little church in Stockton, California. Uh, we were in Sacramento, California. And uh, it was a little Calvary Chapel. And it was a beautiful little church. I still love those guys. And, but we, we, we didn't understand giving. So what we did is... When the bucket would pass, or the little bags would pass every Sunday, we, were, we weren't raised Christian, you understand? So we'd kind of look at it like, oh, I wonder why, what, what, what's that, you know? What's in there? Oh, look, there's money in there. Awesome. You know, so, no, we never took money out. But it was like, what is this thing? And uh, the, the pastor, uh, for whatever reason at that time, um, I'm sure it was good reasons, but he just never really taught about the tithe. And so we were always like, we should give, you know. And so being hungry college students, we'd like dig deep and, you know, out would come lint and buttons and strings and stuff. And we'd put them in. That's all we had. Occasionally a nickel or two and maybe a couple bucks. So we gave for years. I'm sure we never even reached 1% giving. Does that make sense? 
Because 1% of all we made, well, we didn't make much. But for sure, that 1% wasn't making into the offering. So we were probably living really close to, let's say, 99.10. We began to, but, but it was in our heart to give. And so we did. We gave what we could. Over some time, it occurred to me, oh, I should give. I figured out, I think I found it on my own in the Bible. I realized the word tithe means tenth. And so I thought, oh, I should give a tenth. Well, I was an employee, so my money came to me like a paycheck, which has taxes taken out. So when the taxes came, or when the check came minus taxes, let's say I was paid $200 a week, and when I actually got the check, let's say it was $150, I would take, oh, 10% of that, 15 bucks, and I'd put it in a little bag, right? So I was working my way up to 10% of my net check. I thought, okay, this feels good. Nobody's teaching me this stuff. This is just in my heart to give. And Donna's, of course. So we're, we're doing this. And um, an interesting thing, from 0% to 10% probably spans six years. Long time. I'm just, I can't remember, honestly. It's not even in my brain. But it was a lot of time. So there was a lot of time. My point is, I had a long time in there where I wasn't giving the full tithe. Well, there's a, a, a perspective that says that God will punish you if you're not bringing the full tithe. And so I think back to my days. And, you know, Donna and I didn't have much money. A big week for us, a big, the party of the week was a carton of Oreo cookies and a gallon of milk. That was us going wild. Wow. Because we could splurge on a gallon of milk. You know what I mean? So it was that tight for us in those days, and it was fine. But I realized God totally blessed us. Even though we were given maybe 1%, maybe 2% eventually, maybe 3 My, I can't stand up here and say that we were giving the full tithe. I also can't say that God wasn't rewarding us even we gave a partial tithe. So I began to think, I wonder how the tithe works. So time goes on, and we finally make it to 10%. God is still blessing us. Blessing us looked like um, happy, things didn't break. We were broke, uh, but we didn't worry about it. You know, we were just making it, make, making it work. And it probably didn't look very pretty, but we were having fun. Um, time went on. And I, and I found this really interesting story. It's, it comes from an InterVarsity Press uh, manual, a Bible study aid. And it, what it does is it teaches every verse in the Old Testament and a separate volume for the New Testament, teaches it in context of its day. It's, it's a totally different way to look at things, and it's really helpful because what it does is it takes out language today you know when we say something today a word today means something even 20 years ago means different the word gay for example and i'm not picking on that i'm just saying oh that's really changed in its meaning well imagine this culturally and generationally you know you know so what was happening when the ties started was the question i had in my mind and the story was abram abram was a farmer he realized this Abram is this cattle rancher, and he goes out in the middle of this wilderness, and he builds himself a little 
little house out there and forms himself, you know, family starts happening. I'm sure he had slaves. How we feel about slaves, we understand historically there's been slavery forever. And so he probably had himself some slaves, but apparently he taught them really well, treated them really well. And these became what were called his trained men. So this little farmer is out in the middle of this wilderness area, and he's raising cattle, and he's probably digging wells and eking out a life in this desert, right? And he's got his people around him, families, and the men in the families are his trained men. Now, what trained men looks like, I would presume, is, oh, these, are, these guys are trained in how to farm and how to fight. They're trained in how to farm because they've got to stay alive. They're trained in how to fight because back in those days, the way you went shopping is you went to the neighbor and beat them up and took their stuff. <laughs> the, you know, and we get all tweaked today, but it's like, so here's what happens in this story. It's in Genesis. And these five kings go, let's go shopping. And they get on their horses and they get all their armies together and they go off and they're going shopping. And they find on the way that there were seven kings over here that went, hey, they're going shopping. We better get ready. So these two armies array in their ray for war. You get it? And uh, there's, at this point, there's no evil. There's no bad guys or good guys. There's just shoppers. <laughs> okay. Black Friday. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> wow. So here it is. Now it just so happens that in one of those one of those seven kings was over a place called Sodom. And um Sodom had a little dude living in their town called Lot. And Lot was indirectly related to Abram. So Abram's not even the story. Abram's over here farming. And Lot is hanging out. And here come the five kings, and they go to war against the seven kings. And this big old battle happens, whatever it looked like. I'm sure it was awful. And these, ki- these kings go to war, and the five kings whip the seven kings. So the seven kings are either dead or probably run off. And the five kings just take everything off the shelves. That's how it works. Hey, look at all these women. You know, they had a little different culture back then. We'll take these babies, too. Wow, look at all these cows. Look at all this food. We're going to take all that stuff. So they just pillage the towns of the king, seven kings. So here goes the five kings, and they're just coming home with their shopping carts. Wheels squeaking. They're just like, yay, that was a good time. Well, this guy limps out of town and goes over to Abram and says, Abram, this is what happened, and they've taken your nephew. And um, Abram's like, oh, that nephew. Darn it. Well, guys, we better go get him. So they, they get all their cattlemen together. All these farmers gather up. They, I, you know, they probably get their... They probably had some swords, but mostly I'm thinking they had like pitchforks and shovels and stuff. This is in the Bible. I'm just saying, I'm guessing these guys weren't professional armies. They're just a bunch of tough farmers. 
That chokes me up when I say tough farmers. Just um, eking out alive. And so here it goes. The, um, they gather up and they decide to take off after these five kings, the armies of the five kings, and they chase them down. Bible says that Abram and his people took off after these five kings and catches them one at a time. They catch up the probably the last trailing army and attack it and beat them. I don't know, it must have been a lunch or something. That is just wrecking me to think about how miraculous that would have been. We're farmers. The men in this room, let's say us. There's no age limit. Dude, we're the farm we're the men. And we gotta go. And the people we leave behind, our wives and children, the, what are left, they're like, God, I hope he comes back, right? And so here we go. We take off and we, we catch this last king and we whip him. And we get our stuff back. But there's four more to go and they keep, they keep going. And they, they attack and they fight and they kill. All these evil guys, they take back every king's Everything that they've stolen, they, they get it back. And it, it says that they chased that last king, whoever it was, I can't even pronounce his name, chased him far away. I forget how far it is, but it must have been miles. Imagine these are guys running around on foot and probably on camel? I don't know. How are you getting around? But somehow, they chase these dudes running for their lives. These are the winning king armies. And they chase them out. And they capture back all these ladies, all these babies, all that cattle, all the clothing, all the food, everything that was stolen. They get it all back. And they're coming back. Here comes Abram, and they've got all this stuff. You know, I think they've got little sounds in their ears, little, little kids laughing and running around and chasing and goofing around. They're, they're just probably walking back through the desert, and these little kids are laughing and goofing around. They're back. Isn't that something? And they come all the way back, and as they go, they stop, and there's this line in the sand, and it's the territory of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is an interesting cat. It says that he had no beginning and no end. And back in those days when you crossed another territory, you had one of two choices. You could give a tithe, which meant I honor you and respect you. Or you could withhold it and say, come on, bring it. Because we're bad and we're going shopping. That's how it worked. You see, back in those days, we don't know this today, but a tithe and a tax you crossed through the land with the same thing. It was the, That's how you did business in those days. And if you were tough enough to enforce your territory, you were paid honoraria as you passed through. Isn't that something? So what, it was a tribute. But it was, it was to the king and it was also to the church. It was, there was one thing. Understand? We have a separation of church and state, but that wasn't back then. Church was the state. State was the church. And so here he comes, and 
Abram is standing at the border of Melchizedek's land, and he thinks, I'm going to honor this guy, because you know who this is, Melchizedek? He knows two things. One, you don't pick a fight with a guy who has no beginning or end. He's smart, right? That is not a good plan. So point number one, don't kill, throw in a, fight a guy that never dies and never, start, never got born. Secondly, he was known as the priest of the Lord Most High. Now, you've got to understand, in Abram's day, they were, he probably worshipped many gods. You know, we think he's a Christian, but no, there was no cross back then. And everybody just, they, he was called a deist. They just had gods all over the place. They probably worshipped the sun god. I'm making this part up because I don't know, but probably the sand god and the wind god. And I don't know what all they did. But Abram stops and says, I want to honor this priest of the Lord Most High. Because I have this sound in my ears. These little kids. These, these cattle mooing that were stolen and are recovered. He has this gratitude in his heart. This should not have happened. I'm a farmer. And I just defeated five kings' armies. And so he's processing this. And this he comes to the border. And he outcomes Melchizedek. And he gives what has become the first recorded tithe in Scripture. And it became a, an, an established thing in Abram's life in Isaac's life and in Jacob's life, it, be, it became a pattern where Abram would give a tithe of all of his increase. Does that make sense? Well, I want to share this because it matters so much to me. You see, the tithe is under scrutiny in today's church. I doubt if it's in this, in this place. But right now, the younger generation doesn't get the tithe. They have this idea at many different ways, but I'm not, I'm not arguing with them. I'm just trying to represent them. They have this idea right now that the tithe was Old Testament, and the tithe and the Old Testament was satisfied at the time of the cross, which is true. And when the, when the cross happened and the Old Testament laws were satisfied, there's no reason to carry on the, new, the Old Testament laws in today. And in that, they bundle up some things. One of them is the tithe. And uh, it's kind of interesting to note that Abraham was doing this before the law was established. But that doesn't convince them, interestingly enough. It doesn't convince them that the Levitical law that was solved at the cross, which was answered at the cross, does not include the tithe. The tithe was started in, in advance. Abram was earlier. But this argument doesn't, it doesn't win them because they feel like the cross changed everything, which it did. And I've thought about this for a while now, and, I, and I've concluded it like this. I think the cross is, in fact, all of that. The cross changed everything. The cross is bigger than we'll imagine, maybe never, ever all know, even in eternity. I think we'll be understanding and discovering what Jesus did. Just the shock of the king of the universe coming and sending his son. It, we'll be marveling over this for eternity, I think. But in that process, the cross did stop some things, like the guilt offering that we talked about. 
that, I think that did go away. I think, I think um, many, many of those laws that I couldn't keep, that the Pharisees were so good at, um, the cross ended that. It solved it because Jesus became our offering for sin. And when we accept Christ, that we are aligning ourselves with the one who answered the need, the answer to sin. We know this. But what I think is interesting is the cross, if you imagine it standing right here, everything that it stopped, it didn't stop everything from the Old Testament because a few things got through. Like there was love in the Old Testament and it got through. I think, I think um, so many things got through, like being married, a husband being married and devoted to one wife. I think that got through. You know, things that we kind of forget about, it's like, oh, yeah, that got through. I think that a man should be married to a woman, not to another man. You know, I'm not trying to be political, but I just think, oh, I think that got through. I think that's New Testament and Old Testament. I think that, I think that there's a simplicity where in the Old Testament God is talking about, I will write my law on their hearts. I think that got through. I think that the tithe got through because I think that that devotion and that gratitude that was in Abram when he stood on that border of that country, when he had behind him this tribe of farmers that were now heroes, that had rescued someone else's wives and children and wealth and all the stuff. All this stuff is around him, and he is looking at it going, wow. You know, I didn't do that by the, the, the God of the sands. I didn't do that by the God of the winds. I didn't do that by the God of the sun or whatever he was talking about. He said, I did that by the Lord Most High. And so this... This idea of a tithe is, is powerful to me. It, it's a, in its, I believe in its purest form. It's a, it's a dedication, a simple act of worship that is so profound. I don't think the cross stopped that. So because of that, I look in my own life and I feel myself kind of like Abram. Because I am a farm boy. And I am eking out alive, just like you guys. And I have gone to war, and I have won. And I don't think it's because I'm swifter, faster, or tougher than the next guy. I think there's this Lord Most High that did that, and he's been writing on my heart. And I want to just bring, I feel like, you know, the reason I'm alive, uh, I think it's pretty much God. It's pretty much him. And that's, and so that pilots my life. You know, without God, what would I be? I'd, I don't know. I'd be addicted to all sorts of stuff by now. I'd be a wreck if I was alive. Um, I'd be a mess. And so I think, you know, my life really is devoted. I mean, I, that's what I want. So how do I make my numbers serve me? How do I make money my slave? Well, first off, is its first assignment is to give me. And so that's why my priority one, and I encourage you guys to do the same. Set your priority one 
to the tithe. And so here we are back in college, and Steve and Donna now are tithing 10% of our net pay. And I read this story, and it begins to tutor me. And I realize I'm paying taxes on my gross, but I'm tithing on my net. And I don't think I want my God honored below my nation. Now, I'm a national guy. I love America. But I thought, you know, in those days, today we've torn the tax and the tithe into two things. And yet our tax law, based on the Bible, is very, as crazy as it is, and probably none of it, nobody in this room even knows a third of it as much as I do, because I'm a, I was a tax accountant. But I'm saying that fundamentally, it's interesting to me, the tax is only on your increase. That's why it's called an income tax. And that's interesting because that's what Abram tithed on was his increase. The two are almost parallel. And in those days, tithe and tax weren't apart. They were together. So I thought, okay, I'm going to, I chose to tithe on my gross or tithe on the same figure that my taxes are calculated on. Does that make sense? So that is my logic. Well, every time I go through this process, more and more falls to the giving line and less and less to the living. So it's hard. But I am achieving my goals. I am driving my life. My life is following my, my, my purpose. Does that make sense? If you get that backwards, if your purpose is following your money... That's called mammon. That's called greed. Might be called poverty mentality. We, that is all handled in the prosperous soul material. I'm not going to reopen that can of worms. But I'm just going to say, no, I want to live on purpose. I want to live with meaning. And for me, meaning is this knee in the sand on the boundary of territory owned by the Lord Most High. And I want to be that way. So I decide, okay, we're going to give 10%. Now, 10%, honestly, on the net, maybe we were giving around 8%. And it took us time to get there. Eventually, I realized this, oh, I'm going to tithe on the gross. When we moved to gross, we had to move to a 90 10 Lifestyle. Does that make sense? Now, our life is simple. We had no kids at this point. But we were tithing. We felt good about it. And then I told you before, one day the Holy Spirit says, what would happen if you gave 11%? I told you that. And I knew he wasn't asking for me to tell him. He was like, here's an invitation. All right. So this was the first time in my life where Steve and Donna began to navigate based on a giving assignment. And as this, as time went on, this became 12 and 88. He brought us to, he invited us to 13. And I remember how this happened. I was in the chapel. 
And he says, no joke, he says, what would happen if, and I stopped him. I said, oh, no, no. I know where you're going. And he said, no, you don't. And he said, if you matched your savings with what you give. Well, right? I thought, well, I tell you what will happen is my wife is going to knock me in the head. Because that's going to be a really tough shift. And it's like, like everything we do, and I encourage you over and over to do this. Do this in agreement with your spouse. And so she's, she's a godlier woman than I am a man. So that wasn't a challenge for us. But as we got together and we thought, wow, 13% savings. I never even, I mean, we hadn't saved a thing. Because saving wasn't valuable to us. Giving was valuable to us. In fact, culturally, saving is almost treacherous. It's almost like, where's your faith? Why are you, why are you doing that? There's two really interesting boundaries in this financial world that we're, that, that we're talking about. Let's say these are boundaries. One is the idea of savings. I don't, it's like, Inside the territory of no savings, you're like godlier. And if you get into savings area, there's like this thought, at least, or maybe it's a, maybe it's a guilt or a condemnation or something. I'm sure it's from the enemy. But it says if you have savings, you have no faith. It's, you're you're going to get lazy without, if you have savings. You're not going to have faith if you do that. And so I've been processing that out, and I realized, oh, actually it takes me a bunch of faith to live on what I think is directions from this God that I can't see or touch and he speaks to me sometimes but it's usually in the shower and I never hear it you know it's like what exactly are we doing and and it's like oh I realized the reason that boundary can get messy for Christians is because there's lack of clarity in your assignment. And closing that orphan gap. Listening to Papa. Will give you that clarity. And now for us. It's not a conflict. It's not a struggle. In fact saving is our assignment. Right. Because our purpose is to silo wealth. You got to make sure you attach it. To your purpose for living. What is God building? What does he put you to? What task has he put you to? The other boundary that's really fascinating says that when I am out of money, I get really, really hungry for God. It's like I get tender and simple and devoted when I am broke. And so I see, I watched myself engineer broke so that I could be tender and devoted and simple to the Lord. Does that make sense? It's like a trap I got into. It's like when I have a lot of money, I get really lazy. But when I'm out of money, I like, oh, Jesus, I'll never speed again. I promise. I promise I'll never have a full fat latte ever again. Right? Whole milk. I won't do whole milk, I promise. 
And our prayers get really devoted. You know what I mean? When we're broke, because we need something. And God started like talking to me about it. He goes, you know that devotion, that place where you get so desperate? And I'll call it the simplicity and purity moment. That clarity. He said, you know how, Steve, how you, you get there when you're broke, but you're kind of like, forget about it when you're, when you're not broke? He said, do you know that there's no, I don't hold, I don't have an expectation that it be different in either place. You're supposed to be, I hear him saying, I want you simple and devoted, whether you're broke, which has come naturally, or you're abundant. So he asked me, can you be devoted when you're abundant? Like, I don't know. And so I'm practicing that. Because you know what I don't want to do? Is I don't want to require crisis to be righteous. I don't want to engineer disaster in my life over and over again so that I can feel like, yeah, I'm, I'm really close to God right now. I'm really close to God. And by the way, I'm loaded. Is that even possible? I don't know. But I want to find out. I want to find out how to stay pure like Abram on the border of Melchizedek's land and be just as devoted with my knee in the sand. Because you understand, Abram did that when he was loaded. Literally loaded. And yet Abram had it. And that's why he established it. And this is why the tithe is so important. So eventually, Steve and Donna got to 74, 13, 13. And then God came back and said, what would happen if? And we started this. He said, what if 14? I said, okay, well, priority one is 14. Priority two means 14. Priority three means how am I going to live Oops, on 72, right? Now, I'm going to come back to an illustration I had earlier, and that was the potted plant. You remember the, here's the pot, and here's Steve and Donna growing inside. And the temptation was, during seasons of our lives, is we would be root-bound, we would pray for help, God would rescue us, and the pot would get bigger. He would replant us, either with a job or a promotion, or eventually it was two incomes, and then three incomes, and multiple streams of income. Just that promotion and that blessing as it grows. And what is, you can see it like our, our pot was getting larger and larger. And it was easier and easier for us to grow. But it was at a point in our life we realized, you know what? Because our giving goal is driving us, which dictates our saving goal, what happens is it limits our living. We live on the rest. And living on the rest is what we did as we go, you know, I think we've got enough of a house. Honestly. And, and the truth is we have a beautiful house. I love our little house. And uh, we've got a couple really nice cars. But they're not like fancy we're just like, you know, we've got enough. I told you about my motorcycles. The truth is they're just kind of beat up normal motorcycles. I love them, but there's nothing. You know, they're not the newest Indian. Have you seen the new Indian? <laughs> oh, my gosh. There's a motorcycle right there. Okay. That was a rabbit trail. Anyway, 
I'm back. So we, what we did is we go, we, you know, we're just going to kind of prune, and we're good. And so what happened is we kind of got used to living inside of our pot. But God didn't stop promoting us because we're tithing. You realize a tithe of 11% is a tithe plus an offering? So I'm kind of misusing the word. A tithe of 14% is a tithe plus a 4% offering. Does that make sense? So I'm just kind of flying around on that language. But what's interesting is God is a rewarder of those who seek him. He's a rewarder. It's in Hebrews. He loves to reward us. Now, we're not doing all this for the reward, but it is pretty fun. And so God continues to increase our pot. But the thing is, our plant is pretty much done. This is kind of how big our life is. And we're pretty happy about it. In fact, we really live pretty simply. And I love it. Because when I was in college living on 98%, we could barely, barely make it. Now, we can live on 72% easily because the pot is so much bigger. Does that make sense? Over the years, God is promoting and blessing and income is growing and we're, we're trying to learn how to be faithful and he's saying things like, write a book. I'm, I can't even write my name right hardly. You know? and so we practiced and practiced and worked and eventually the book came out and it's just this, this longevity of time Perseverance is a powerful lever, leverage. And so, you know, you don't hear any messages on perseverance anymore, do you? Now, you used to back in the day. Maybe you guys do. But, I mean, back in the days of like, um, oh, what's the guy? Leonard Ravenhill and, you know, the old, the old giants of, of um, the, evangelism, the evangelists of the, of the day. They talked about perseverance. We never hear about that anymore. The truth is it's very powerful. It requires vision. It requires long-term vision. And so, here's Stephen Donna just kind of putting along. And again, please don't hear this as a boast because there's nothing to boast about. It's just, I'm just celebrating and testifying that at some point, you can, when you, when you settle into this assignment of God and you start working out your faithfulness, God loves that. And as we demonstrate faithfulness, now it doesn't, faithfulness, faithfulness doesn't mean you do it all right. It doesn't mean that all your problems are solved. It doesn't mean that you don't run out of money every month. It just means that you're just doing your best, you're being obedient, and you're keeping that simplicity and purity. And I think God loves that. Because remember back when Steve and Donna were in college? We bought a car back then. We didn't know what we were even doing. It was the dumbest thing. If it was my kid, I'd be like, slap yourself right now. Just slap yourself in the face. <laughs> Pull your hand way back and then go really fast right into your face. Do it. But, you know, for us, it was like, oh, I guess we'll buy a car right now. And we bought a car. We're living off of nothing. And it was just proof that somehow our 90% was going farther than the 100% would. That blessing that comes from the tithe. Okay. Now, our goal is to get, our, our, well, our ultimate goal. Our goal originally, or late, lately, I should say that way, our latest goal was to get to 70, 15, 15. We wanted, 
At the end of the year, we measure. So we're not doing... Remember that nasty spreadsheet with all the categories we can spend money in? We're not really tracking at all on all of that detail. All we know is we're going to give 15%, we're going to match it into the bank, and we get to live on everything else. Now, if we decide to have lattes every single day and we're 400 pounds because of it, we've got some priority deals to deal with, right? Or if I'm my couple, my 80-year-old friends that are living in a house and they have a Max the dog living with them and they are about to lose their apartment, it was an apartment, uh, it, you know, they have to come to terms with some of their priorities. And uh, we had the same thing. We had a priority crisis at one point. Do we keep our kids in public school or private school? So we had to wrestle with that. So some of you I know are having, you, you have to work it out. You have to answer it. I'm here just for today and I leave. You guys, when I leave, have your still your same problems. Except I think you have a few more tools now. One of which is, one of which I believe is a kind of context like you can stand on top of the hill and kind of look out over your life and think, okay, ask Papa, am I to accumulate wealth? Am I to be strength, a strength giver in my finances or a, or a strength consumer in my finances? For example, um, we used Heidi Baker and Tracy Evans, two dear friends of mine. Um, I hope this doesn't communicate wrong, but I believe that they are strength consumers because they take money from donors and use it on babies in Africa. And I like that. You, nobody does it better than you. Do that. So they're engineered to do that. But I'm engineered to fund it. And I think, you know, when Steve and Donna were broke, we didn't have any strength. We were just trying. When we were here, 100, 0, 0, we really had no strength to give away except for some volunteer time. But God asked me one time, he, he said, in your lifetime, how much do you think you'll give away in the tithe? And being an accountant, I saw a pile of beans. And in this pile of beans, that was a joke, there was a pile of beans, and I thought, I can see in my lifetime giving up this much money, the sum total of all the tithes of my whole life. You see that? It's just a mathematical function of the total income that I'll bring in. The average American brings in between 3 and $5 million in their lifetime. Did you know that? Where is all that wealth? It's all consumed. So there's this pile of beans. And he said, that's right. You're going to make quite a pile of beans. And he says, but what happened? What would happen if you built a giving machine. And I was like, what's that? And he said, a foundation that outlives you and it's, in, it's like a huge economic motor that turns and its function is to give away wealth. And it was like I looked up and I saw, yeah, my little pile of beans and Mount Shasta. I don't know if you guys know mountains around here, but I don't know your mountains right here, but up in Reading, there's the big one, Mount Shasta. And God was showing me this thing could, could give beyond your lifetime, beyond the lifetimes of your sons and your grandsons and daughters. I thought, oh my goodness, that's a way better idea. And so I, I begin to navigate this, this importance of the giving. 
So Steve De Silva and Donna De Silva, we work hard, and we finally, after 30-some years, we make the 70-15-15. And it happened about two years ago for the first time, and I was shocked. I was shocked because it was so easy to reach because we hadn't grown. This looks like a cupcake with sparklers coming out. Um, let me try to improve my plant a little bit. Our, our little pot hadn't, we hadn't gotten any bigger. We were living in this much of the soil. And all this room is left for giving and saving. So it's easy. So that should, I'm hoping what that does is plant a seed of hope. That over time, God will not stop blessing you. Why would he? And that you can take control of your finances and steward your life. Doing it on purpose. Attaching it to what you think he has assigned to you to do. And as you do that, that's obedience. That's, that's faith in its purest form. Do you know that out of all the things a man or woman can do, the only thing that makes it pleasing is if faith is an ingredient in it. Without faith, nothing pleases him. It doesn't matter. I mean, I could like give all my money. This is the guilt offering conversation. I could give all my money to Heidi Baker, who would be a great person to give it to. But it wouldn't please God if I did it out of fear. Isn't that weird to think? Out of all the things I do, the one essential is that faith be involved. So, get it in your recipe. Stir that baby in there. Now, where we're going down the road is, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe 60, 20, 20. At one point, I thought, I, I can't even imagine surviving on 60%. That's like living in a tent. And apparently Donna is not interested in that because she's praying and this pot gets bigger. So it gets easier and easier. I can see now that 60% is pretty easy to live on. Now, not today, but this is where Steve and Donna are going. Again, the perseverance idea. This, by reputation, I, I don't have any idea for true, but what's his name? Warren, uh, Warren Rick Warren, doing... Uh, just for illustration, a reverse tithe. I, I have no idea what he saves. But the concept of living on the ten and giving the rest away. Now, granted, Rick Warren's 10% probably makes mine look like a mouse. But, but that's kind of a neat goal, isn't it? And this last thing, this is timeline, isn't it? And Steve and Donna are right in here. We're in our 50s somewhere. So somewhere out here is a really interesting thought. I don't know where you draw this line, but this comes from a book that I really recommend called The Eternity Portfolio. And it's not a very fascinating book. He's not a storyteller at all. He's kind of a technician. He's boring is what that means. But, but the thing about it, he has this idea. He said that Christians perceive the finish line at death. We kind of make money, make money, make money, make money, and then we die. It's kind of over. But this author, and I've forgotten his name now, he says, consider the eternity portfolio and consider yourself that the finish line happens earlier in your life. Maybe when you're 50. Maybe when you're 60. Somewhere there's a finish line and your assignment to make money, make money, make money ends and you shift to Give money, give money, give money, give money. 
You become a real philanthropist. You actually walk into it. You know, I don't think Stephen Donner is a philanthropist because the amount of money we give away is still pretty pretty teeny. But if you're living in this zone, you're giving away some cash, and that raises a whole new set of problems. Philanthropy is really tough. It's a really tough area. How much do you give away? How do you give it to an organization and not destroy it? Do we do what we've done in Africa for generations is just like throw money over the fence and let them wreck? You know, they get, they get $100. That's like four years of income for them, and it could just wipe them out. So, you know, how do you do that? Well, do you withhold it? Well, no, that's not the gospel. So somewhere in there, there's this, there's this mystery, and we're going to have to solve it. And I'm hoping we'll solve it in our lifetime. But this is this idea. So I think I had you go to page 33. Is that right? 43. Let me get there. And we're really close to being done. This is the economic motor. It's going to give you a little tour. I told you in the beginning that this, this uh, manual is a work in process. This isn't a complete finished product. There's parts of this that bother me. And they begin on, uh, I like page 45. Page 46 is good. Page 47 is good. In fact, page 48 and 49, what you do there is you'll have the dialogue that I talked about on priorities. Because you see, I don't have time to go through it, but if we were sitting in my office across from my desk and we get done with all these, these concepts, it lands on, yeah, but how do I pay my rent? How do I fit my life into this living box? The truth is, I don't have any money. I'm still living on 100%. What do I do? And what's going on inside of me is, go to war, dude. I don't say it that way. But I'm like, you're not a victim. Engineer your life. Engineer your life. And so I just encourage you to do that. Don't tie yourself up on the tracks and lay down. Remember little Nell and Snidely Whiplash and the train and all that stuff? You know what? Nell is powerful and ferocious. Little Nell, if, if you feel like you're trapped, I say, you know what? That's a lie from the pit of hell. You get up, Nell. You break those ropes. You get up. That's ridiculous. You build your life. Now, I'll, I'll talk them through it gently, but inside I'm like, girl, you girl or guy, whatever you are, you guys are, you are a son or a daughter of the maker of the planet. And you are not a victim. You engineer your life. Well, we really love our dog. Then you keep your dog. Is that priority one? It is priority one. Then goodbye to that apartment. Now, I'm not encouraging that stuff. Do you understand that? That's just a really crazy example. But this is where we go through the hard work of priorities. And this couple... And they're in here as well. Two things, they happen within weeks of each other. I think I shared this last time about the couples that had to decide, am I going to put my son, my children in private school or public school? And they couldn't make their balance, budgets balanced. And so uh, that was a powerful outcome. That just, just like God was just, he like laid that out for me. They felt like they were in it and I was just watching. It was amazing to watch. And it really told me about how we get to engineer our lives. And you know what? If you have to make tough decisions, make them. Nobody said this is going to be easy. Living within your means 
simply means dropping something into this box. Remember I told you that if you take net worth over two different times, you'll tell what direction you're going? You realize if you saved one dollar a year, that dollar would end up on your balance sheet somewhere and your net worth would grow by one dollar. I told you I can show you how to change the direction of your life just like that. And here's the answer. You put one dollar into savings and it'll work. Because your net worth will grow. It's just that easy. Now there's, there's lots more to be said. But remember we're flying at 10,000 feet over the top of an idea. And I want you guys to feel really powerful about it. I want you to go, you know what? I really, I hate to move out of this apartment or this house. I've had people sell their houses. I, I'm, not, I'm not telling them to do anything. And I'm not going to tell you to do anything. But I'm going to say, here's how you make these tough decisions. Remember the couple, the pastor couple? And their decision, what do we do? And they have that rugged moment where they're looking eyeball to eyeball. And they go, priorities were mixed up. In fact, he was thinking he was protecting her and honoring her. And he, by keeping her in school and doing these things. Because he thought that was her dream. And she was like, man, I just miss the days when I could sleep at night. He's like, really? I was like, really? So make those choices, man. Don't be, don't be afraid. Because, you know, that couple that I told you about last time, I think I also finished that story, and this is all true. The couple that put, they kept their children in private school, but they had to sell their home and move into an apartment. And year, a year, probably three or four years later, honestly, I can't remember the distance of time, but I met him again, and they said, yeah, we're, we're buying a house. So it came back. The stuff comes back, but you don't get to recapture those kids. So really pick your, pick your priorities well, you know. Don't be afraid of hardship. You guys are tough, man. I think Christians, I think we think we're fragile. And we're not fragile, man. We're tough. Now, if we look a little more, page 51 is the, I introduced the idea of the economic engine. You see the little spiral there. But from the spiral down, it makes me wretch. I don't like what I wrote. So I want you to take your pen and put an X through underneath that spiral on page 51. X out to everything on that page and the top half of the next page on 52. That list of inflows and outflows is just a stupid idea and I need to redo it. You're welcome to read it and you can kind of snicker like, <laughs> what an idea is that? I want you to do the bottom of page 51 and the top of page 52. Yep, just like you did. All of the top. All the way down to living beyond your means. I just, I was trying for something, this idea of balancing the equation. It has to do with living within your means. I was trying to say, you know what, if you have an income of $10,000 a month, you're going to have to live within those dollars. Which sounds crazy, because like, who couldn't live on $10,000 a month? Well, I'll tell you who. Everybody who makes $10,000 a month could barely live on $10,000 a month. Because they've grown to the size of that pot. And the same goes for the people that are making $1,200 a month. And so I was trying to communicate this idea of balancing the equation. You have to seize your life, go to war with your priorities, and live within your means. Live within your means, 
make something fall to the savings. What about giving? That's priority one. Priority one is make your giving happen. Priority two is match it. I can't afford that. Work your way into it. How long will that take you? I don't know. It's taken me 33. Still working on it. Does that make sense? It'll get you, it gets you a tractor, and you get to start making traction. You, you get to start heading a direction in your finances. Not being a victim, having something to aim at, because if you aim at nothing, you're sure to hit it. Um, yes? Yes. Yeah. This has to always, this is based on gross. Your percentage is always based on gross, and they all equal 100%. Interesting enough, if you live beyond your means, this is a, real, a reality in America, by the way. I'll just erase this column right here. If you live beyond your means, what does that look like? Well, that looks like 101%. Well, how do you do that? Really easy. You stop giving, and you have negative savings. That's called United States in the first part of the year of the year the 2000 through about 2007. Our average American in I think it was 2005, the average American was living on 100.5 percent of their income. The average American was living on 100.5 percent of their income. How does that work? Credit cards. Negative savings. So the way this works is your, here's my net worth today, here's my net worth tomorrow, and here's this transfer of money moving. It's coming from my living, giving, saving. The only thing that shoves money over there is my savings. If I'm living beyond my means, it's a negative savings, isn't it? If it's a negative savings, my bucket is going to get lower instead of higher. You see that? So I feel like I've given you guys some ideas on, on how important savings is. Now, let me go a little farther. Yeah, it's important. Okay, well, what do I do about that? Well... I would say, based on my experience, your, your first goal is to get to an 80-10-10. That's like first base. You're trying to get around to a home run. Home run is you graduate, and you go to heaven, and God says, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, right now, to make my money serve me, our first base was to get to an 80-10-10. And I give you permission to take a while because it took us years. But once we got to an 80-10-10, I, I did, being an accountant, we do these kind of weird things. I took my life and I figured out if I keep making money, and this is how old I am, if I make money next year, the same amount probably, or maybe I'll get a little raise, and if I take what I was doing at 10% and I put that in the bank, and if that in the bank is earning... Uh, maybe a return of maybe two, one or two percent, because I'm trying to be really conservative. But inflation is eating away at it. 
and so is taxes. So I just kind of built what does my net worth look like in a year if I do an 80-10-10 structure. Can you kind of see where I'm going? Then I said, what if it's what, what is in two years? And in three? And then four, oh, my kid starts college. And then five, I got to pay another, another kid starts college. And so I, six, seven, eight, first one's out of school. Nine, ten, the last one's out of school. Whew, my living is, so I'm tracking. I'm just kind of doing, I wonder what my numbers look like. And you can do this. It doesn't hurt that bad on your own stuff. And I just began to run it out. I ran it out till I was 100 years old because I'm an accountant and we do weird things like that. But the thing is, I thought, I had, at the time, I had this language. I said, one of my goals is to grow my net worth to a million dollars. That's a round number and it, to be a millionaire, that feels impossible. So I thought, now oh, that's a life goal. Maybe I can do that. So I said, I want to, I want to have net worth of a million dollars. And this is where I'm starting. And at 80, 10, 10, and this kind of an interest rate, minus that inflation, minus those taxes, plus whatever gains. Oh, there's better. Put some losses in. Hey, I pay off my house out here. Oh, I got college. I got to buy a new car. I just engineer this thing out until I'm 100 years old. And I map my, save, my net worth. And at the end of, at the time, was probably like 35 years or something like that, or 40 it was more like 50 years. Oh, it must have been more than that because I was in my 40s. So let's say 60 years in the future. I thought, man, by the time I'm 60, what is my savings like? And I add it all up and I get my spreadsheet. I'm like a mad scientist in the office. I'm just like my, my hair, if I had any, would be standing on end. Right? Well, it is standing on end. So it's still happening. Like a mad scientist. And I'm in there and, and it's late at night and it's, it's tax season. So that's... I'd work until, you know, 10 or 11 or 12 or 1 in the morning or whatever I did back then. And I'd be all foggy-eyed. And I'd, before I go to bed, I'm going to finish this. And I get it all done and I calculate. Then I look. Two, what was it? $23,000. It's like, wait, that, that can't be. Where's, where's, where's it broken? And I realized that over time, with inflation and really conservative investments. Remember I said 1% or 2% or 2 or 3 I think I said. Really conservative investments. Over time, the discount. Do you remember when our accounts receivable conversation, how there's a discounted value? I realized the thing, 80-10-10 is literally first base. It's like kindergarten. If you want to mount wealth, you're going to have to beat 10%. This is a, I'm turning the page and I'm taking us into the creation of wealth category. I realized some of my paradigms were unreasonable. One, if I keep saying I want to be a millionaire, I better think like one and make this thing happen. Number two, if I think I'm going to outperform the stock market, then I better learn how to do it. Right now, I'm not. Number three, my investment rates that I was getting, 2 and 3%, were no good. I have, I've got to get something more aggressive. I'm going to have to, I don't, I don't know what, I don't know where, but I need to beat 3%. Inflation eats that. 3% doesn't even keep up with inflation. And then taxes, I was actually going backwards. 
I'm putting away 10% and I ran it out over 60 years and there's tons of errors in my assumptions. But you've got to understand, at least I can run it out and get a view of, oh, I'm just talking rhetoric. I'm just blah, 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 blah. I'm going to be a millionaire. Well, the truth is I'm, I'm a fool. I'm, just, I'm not even doing this stuff. <sighs> Dust myself off and go back in and started tinkering with some of my realities and I began to find, oh, it is, and here's the truth, it is totally possible to be a millionaire because a millionaire is not that big anymore. The dollars have shrunk. A millionaire back in the 19, early 1900s, back in uh, Rockefeller's day, millionaire was something, and he was, he was probably a billionaire back then. Sir. Excellent. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. 600 billion in that time? Oh, my goodness. That's some scratch, man. That dude was a giant. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. It, thank you. That's amazing. History Channel. Yeah. Yeah, and Carnegie. Man, I could go off on all those guys. But I won't. Because I'm disciplined, man. <laughs> Woo. That was close to a lie, so I, um, I'll repent of that. But, yeah, that's, that's amazing. That guy was amazing. A great book, if you're interested, is read the book Titans. Uh, I can't remember the author's name now. Titans. And it's about the life of Rockefeller, and it's, it's amazing. Amazing. It's interesting to read. If you want to be a guy or a gal who silos wealth, you should study these guys. You should learn about the struggles and the disasters that he had in his life. Why did his children end up so goofy? Why was his brother and sister, I think it was, his sister was basically insane, if I remember right, and his brother hated John D. And, but his brother was, you know, it's hard to judge. I don't mean this as a judgment. Based on the book, he was apparently basically a, worth, a worthless person. In, you know, he just, he just didn't do anything. He just, he just, he, he hated and he used and consumed. So I'm not judging the man. I'm just saying, wow, there's some lessons to learn. Great book. All right. So pages 54 and 5 and 6 are about Max the dog and categories like that. Page 59, 60... Those talk about the categories and mostly talk about living and the idea of living. And so you have a handout for time. I'll just save a bunch of time because I already gave you all this stuff. And I'll go over this. This is in your handouts that I gave, not in the manual. And in this thing, what I did, I built this for students. And I listed, I literally copied off of the internet. Uh, all the places that a typical budget might have. And so literally, this isn't my list. This is a funny list. If you read down through here, there's, there's gambling down here. <laughs> there's all sorts of goofy things. There's a few I deleted because I just, I just couldn't bring people to think, why would Steve think that's a category? You know, like, like alcohol and cigarettes and marijuana and, you know, all these categories. <laughs> I'm like, I can't do that. 
I like to kick the thing a little bit, but I'm like, I can't do that. And so this is all the thing, just a random list, literally copy-paste off of the internet. Then what I did is I grouped them in the categories I use. Those are on the right. So when I say housing, I mean either rent or mortgage payments, property taxes, association dues, home maintenance. And see their utilities are in there, cable TV is in there, lawn and pool care, right? Gasoline for my lawnmower, everything. That's just in the category of housing. So you can understand, I'm not budgeting property taxes or lot rent. I'm just budgeting housing. And in it are all the costs to take care of what I think of as housing. Why do I do that? Because it's too long, man. It's too detailed. I don't want to sit there on my Quicken program at night figuring out, did I put 17 cents into, you know, clothing this year? Or, you know, I'm not monkeying with that. I'm just like, big categories. I use an online program. We use, we use Quicken. Uh, that's not an endorsement. There's tons of them out there. I'm playing with a new one called um, mint.com. And Mint is really, really interesting. It has some limitations that bug me. But for the younger folks, it's brilliant. It automatically takes in off of your bank statement and categorizes, categorizes a bunch of stuff. Its limit is you can't go back and get add history to it. It has to be concurrent. But it's, it's working really well on a certain little account that I have. Um, there's programs now that you can take a snapshot of it, of your receipt, and it'll categorize it. You know, so there's just things now that are smart. And so learn those things. Use those things. Find out what, what works for you. If you're still in an envelope system, use an envelope system. Envelope system is where you go and you cash your check at the bank or wherever you cash it. And let's say you get your $1,000 off of your payday. And you bring it home and you look at envelope number one. It says groceries. And in that, I'm going to put $400, okay, 400 And you go to the next envelope and, oh, that one's for car. That one's for 250 So here's $250. You put it in the envelope. And you take your $1,000 and it goes into all of these envelopes. The amount is written on the outside of the envelope. That's how much you put in it. And um, when you're done, all the cash is in an envelope. Now, if we were going to take this system and impose it, I would have a savings envelope and a giving envelope, wouldn't I? I would have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine envelopes. And how much would be on each one would be my budget or my plan. And so when I put all of these monies into the envelope, the next morning I wake up and guess what? It's time to go pay the rent. So I take my rent envelope and I carry it down and out comes my four or five or six hundred or whatever it is for my rent and I pay my rent. And my envelope gets thinner. And I put my envelope back down and the envelope system works brilliantly because when you get to the end of the envelope and the money's gone, guess what? You're done. It's awesome. Unless you've got a bunch of month left. But, but that's how it works. And it works beautifully. So envelope systems are very powerful. If you're on a spreadsheet, use a spreadsheet. Use whatever, whatever makes it easy. Because if it's easy, you'll do it. If it's complex and hard and confusing, you're going to do it for a week, month or two and just, ugh, it's going to burn out. You're going to quit. So make it simple. And for simple for me, honestly, in our house, 
I look at the universe in three lines, and Donna looks at the universe in these nine lines. And she loves to come home after a trip like this or after, you know, just living. She'll come home in a couple of evenings a week, it seems like. She'll come home and sit at the desk. Now, the filing system in our house is I stagger in the door and I take all these little things that are loose in here. See all those little credit card receipts? And I drop them in the chair. That's what she asks of me. That's not much, is it? <laughs> she knows. She's been, we've been married a long time. She's like, can you just get them in the chair? <laughs> I, I can do that. I can put it in the chair. <laughs> Ooh. So I put him in the chair a couple of times a week. She'll come home and she'll sit down. She'll go through the chair and she'll, she'll key all this stuff into Quicken. We use Quicken. It's just what we use. And uh, she puts it in and it's really cool because at any point we can say things like, hey, I wonder what our net worth is. And we just look at the program and it calculates. It takes our income minus our expenses. I can print a budget to actual report and it will tell me in these nine categories, how are we doing? Where's the money? I can really quickly go, wow, our giving is is behind. We better kick this up. So we're not like wrinkling our hands or whatever that is. That's not wrinkling. What is that? Wriggling. Wriggling. I must be getting to the end of my uh, my word vocabulary. But we are ring- we're not wringing our hands. We don't worry about it at that level. Uh, we just try to navigate on big sweeping things. You know, we, honestly, we probably look at it maybe two or three times a year where we'll go from 10,000 feet and go, are we on track? Yeah, look at that. We're at 15%. That's awesome. And then we'll go back to work, right? And just kind of doing the thing. So it's not like we're anxious at all. And so what's happened is we have turned the corner where the numbers are serving us instead of us serving the numbers. And I just, I want you to get there. It's a way better way to live. Make those dollars serve you. Now, I, um, I'm just going to quickly go through the uh, tour for you on the rest of this. And then I'm going to try to give you one last tool that's kind of specific, and that's the debt snowball. Normally, I take about an hour to an hour and a half on debt. We've been kind of doing little pieces as we go, so I will um, just be able to do this really quickly. But what I want to do is take you to page 59 and mention something. I mentioned living, giving, saving, and then in another breath, I mentioned the idea of bread and seed. Do you remember that? Bread and seed. Well, you can kind of look at it like living is your bread. Giving is your seed. And I think saving is kind of like our, that's our activation toward our purpose. Okay? Now, I think it's, if we don't get too close to this yet and just stand back and think, Bread is really good to eat, but not good to put in the ground. It kind of gets rotten. And seed is really good to put in the ground, but it's not good to eat. Right? So we've got, Steve and Donna, you, we all have this, I think, this assignment of figuring out, God, what belongs in the ground and what belongs in our mouth. All right? Now, I think we can want to put everything in our mouth. And the reason we do that is because we want to live at 100%. But what's helpful for me is 
Um, if I am navigating my life from giving, in other words, if this is a priority in my life, this is Abram at the border of Melchizedek's land. If I navigate from here and it dictates my savings, I have to live on what's left. And sometimes these two really threaten living. And especially when we're starting out. So when you get to those crisis moments where, wow, my giving and saving goals are like cramping my style, you know. In fact, I'm a little grumpy about it. And that little rub is going on. That's the dialogue <laughs> about priorities. What am I willing to fight for? What priorities are in my life that can assault my giving goals? Let's get really real here for a minute. It's not comfortable. But, you know, here's the thing. Uh, there, there are some biblical boundaries. There's one in uh, 1 Timothy, I think it is, that says it's, you know, to not, I can't remember the words exactly, but it's, it's worse than an infidel if you don't supply the needs of yourself and your family. Provide the needs. Okay. Okay. Well, that's an infidel. I'm not sure what that is, but I don't think it's good. So I don't want to be an infidel. So I have to be able to supply the needs of myself and my family. I wonder why God put that so high in Scripture. I think it's, it's because there's an expectation upon us to be a source of strength, not a use of strength. Now, there are times when you go in and out. There are even times when you live beyond your means. Like when I go to college, I live beyond my means. When I started a business, I live beyond my means. But it wasn't the pattern of lifestyle for me. So there's a little quick breeze by for people that are living beyond your means. Hey, don't sweat it. Just stop it. Work your way out of it. Right? Don't beat yourself up. That's the devil's job. And he's really good at it. Just don't give him an ugly stick. Here, beat me with this. Don't do that. Just, um, just understand that you might be in a season, like a student, you might be in a season where you're living beyond your means. But that's not your personal purpose, per, your permanent plan. I think someone over here asked me, can you consider an ed education an investment? Yes. And probably that person isn't, it was you, is probably living beyond their means while it's happening. Because you're in school. You, a lot of times you can't work. That's okay, but just don't make it your permanent, your permanent style like America has done. Um, and so when I come into this crisis, this attack right here, I have the point of my priorities have to come to war. And so I, okay, biblically, I got to feed my babies. So I can, I can go here. I can say, I'm going to feed my babies first. So feeding my babies is bread. That is for my mouth. When I mean that, I mean my, my home, my living. Okay, that's a safe one. Everybody go, will go there. I'm going to feed my babies. That, I'm going to go to, you know, I'm going to go to war over that one. Well, can I go a step further? Will I feed my babies and not give a tithe? Can't believe I painted myself into this corner. But I think it needs to be said and talked about. What would you do? Well, let me, let me take the stress out of the room. Because the oxygen just went right out. Did you feel that? You see, we're terrified to talk about this stuff. But you know what? 
when you're in the ring getting your head beat in, you need an answer. Somebody help me. What do I do right now? And those are the folks I tend to find myself in the room with. Here's the deal. We tithe automatically on every check. That's how we do it in America. Where did that come from? Do you think Abram did that? No, he sheared his sheep once a year and brought all of his stuff. Once a year went to the temple. We have a mechanic, a, a mechanism. Paul talked us, told us to do that. Consider that. He said, do a little bit all along the year so that when I come, you don't have to take an offering. You can just give me what you had. That's where that came from. It's like, oh. Well, I've had people that have said, I, I don't know what to do. My kids are hungry, but I haven't been paying the tithe. I just, I say, well, consider this. Keep track of how much you haven't given, but feed those kids. Because, you know, when Steve and Donna weren't tithing at all, when we were in college, and I told you that story, I did it for this reason. It was interesting to me that later God said, what would happen if, what would happen if, I think I'm repaying the tithe. I think we're paying it back. I think we've more than paid it back now. But I just think God is, God is better than you think. Now, he's keeping track. I'm not saying the tithe isn't important. No, it's very important. It does a bunch of stuff. It rebukes the devourer. It opens revelation. It pays for the Levites or the leaders. It does a ton of things that I could, I could make a list. But it's not, it's, it's not to be done over taking care of certain things. You have to draw the line. I'm giving you permission to whisper it privately and figure out where's our line. Be brave there. Find it out. Talk to Papa about it. Like, I won't even, I won't even, that's, that's an unhealthy environment. I, I can't even bring it up. Or someone will be mad at me or I'll be in trouble. Oh, huh, that sounds like a poverty spirit to me. Or a spirit of, maybe it is a spirit of mammon or something. A spirit of control for sure of intimidation no let's let's talk and draw these lines and so steve and donna we're on the other safe end of this thing we gave we give way more than 10 percent now but we didn't always and god never did get mad at us in fact he he like blessed us and walked us through and he's going to do the same thing for you and so i i want you to understand living giving and saving if your priority one is giving that's really powerful your priority two is saving. Your priority three is living. If you have a plan to live, if you have a LGS plan and something has to give, give in the saving. Give in the saving category. Right? But what if that still isn't enough? Then I would say consider giving in the giving category. Consider that bumper. But, it's, but keep track of that stuff. Because... God is a great, a great lender, and you're borrowing from him, but you better repay it, I think. Now, that's a, that's a delicate thing, but I want to be honest with you guys, you know. I think um, I really like the pages 60, 61, and 62. In fact, 62 is on the board. And at the bottom of 62, I'd like you to write the word end, E-N-D. On the bottom of page 62, write the word end, the end. 
because page 63 starts some sheets that are going to end up in a garbage can or something. I don't know. They, they just, it, 60, page 63 through 72, uh, don't waste your time in there. That was just a bad experiment, you know. Yeah, you're welcome to go through. It all works, but it's, um, it's just rugged. I don't think I'd have you waste your time in that. I think what I would say instead of those pages, I'm redoing this manual. This eventually will be in an appendix. But from 63 to 72, what I was trying to do there is whatever you push out of your savings pushes on to your balance sheet. So if we saw assets, liabilities, and net worth, and then here's my little economic motor turning, and this is next year's or next month's assets. I call them debts so that I'm consistent, or net worth. This is the bucket today. This is the bucket later. My economic engine is turning, and that's what's making this one bigger. What I was trying to do in those pages is move us from off the living, giving, and saving, because this economic engine is really living, giving, and saving. The savings part is all that comes here. And I was trying to say, where are you going to put that savings? Are you going to put it into assets? Or are you going to pay down debts? And whether, wherever you put it, it's going, to change, it's going to have the same effect on your net assets, your net worth. In other words, if, if $1,000 came, this is example B, and, gets, and I put it into cash, it's going to raise my net worth by $1,000. Example C, if $1,000 comes and I instead put it to debt, it's still going to raise my net worth by $1,000. So where you put it is a separate discussion, is the bottom line. That is the class number two, which we would basically be conversing, where's the most efficient place to put your money? Do you build cash? Do you build investments? Do you pay down debt? Blah, blah, blah. So that's really beyond the scope. That's why I wanted to fly over that. I think we communicated well in there. If I look to the next section, I'm on page 75. 76 talks about, uh, you'll see at the top of 76 is a little illustration there. It looks like a little snail, but it's got a nose, drippy nose. What that is, it's supposed to be a faucet. And the faucet is, is leaking. And it's like the savings spilling out of my lifestyle. My living, giving, saving, the saving, the amount that's coming out. As it drips out, I put it first into a, an emergency fund bucket. So in our house, our emergency fund looks kind of like a bucket. It's a savings account, bank account. But it's like we want to have $1,000 in it. So we moved our bucket underneath our economic motor. And every time money moved, we put it into the emergency fund. Does that make sense? And as it's dripping into the emergency fund, it's drip, drip, drip. It reached $1,000. And I went, ta-da. I go, God, we did it. $1,000. Now what do you want us to do? He said, I'd like to see, what do you say, two weeks, one, one paycheck in your emergency fund. He says this to me. I'm like, oh, my God. Do you know how much money that is, God? He does. So I went, I kept my bucket under the spigot until it reached one full paycheck in the emergency fund. Then I said, ta-da. Now what? He said, 
one month's worth of pay. Oh, gosh, it took us months. Eventually, a month's worth of income is sitting in my emergency fund. And I go, ta-da, now what? And he says, good job, now go after debt. And I realized, okay, you see, emergency fund money, I told you, is like a bumper. Really, emergency fund is like inventoried time. You can see, I sell my time and I get paid by the hour. And every time I work, I make money. And I take a little bit of that time and I put it in a bank account and I save it. And let's say I save a month's worth of emergency fund. I've like stuck time on the shelf. If it's a month, it's 30 days. So let's say I'm cruising along and I'm doing my job and all of a sudden one day they go, guess what? We're going to vote you off the island. You're done. See you. Have a nice life. Give me your keys. And I'm like, out of work. How many days do I have before I'm in a big, big problem? 30. Because I had an inventory of time sitting on the shelf. So your investments, even retirement plans, really is a way to inventory time. A person who's independently wealthy is a person that has inventoried so much time they never need to work again. Is that a place to go? Personally, I don't think so. I think I'm going to work till I'm done, till I go home. I'm just going to work on my own terms instead of for somebody else. But my point is, once I reached that month, I felt like God said, pull your bucket out, set your emergency fund on the shelf, and move a different bucket underneath and start paying down your debt. And you'll see it says, what does that say? Debt payoff. And that was that second mortgage. Remember that? And so we put our... In other words, we aimed all of our money at that second mortgage. And as it's pouring in there, one day, my kid has an accident, rolls his pickup on the top of Grapevine, driving home from L.A. Rolls his truck. Thankfully, he's alive. He doesn't get killed. But it totals the truck. Literally just... (laughs) So he gets out of the thing alive. He calls me. We're all quiet about it, scared to death. Anyway, he's all good. But now we have a problem. We've lost a big asset and we've got to replace it with a new one. So what do we do? La, la, la. Major dent, but we had an emergency fund. We took our emergency fund out. We walked down, paid a huge down payment on a car, borrowed the rest, came back. Now my son, who lives in L.A., he, we, we had to set him up. So he's driving a car. And there's some other details you probably don't care about. But he's basically, he, we are now the bank and he is paying us. So he has to pay for that car. But we own the car, except we still have a mortgage to pay on the thing, mortgage. But we come back and we have emptied our emergency funds. So we move the debt payoff out of the way and we move the emergency fund back. Over a number of months, we refill our emergency fund. When we're done with that, we move it to the side and we push back our debt, go out, we go after the car, and within a number of months, we pay the car off. And so once we get our debts paid off, I'm like, God, what do you want us to do next? And he says, why don't you start plan, plan spending, plan your spending in advance. That's things like vacations, which are really important to us, time away to rest, be with family, and so, uh, you know, other things like, furniture or 
just just that kind of thing. So yeah. No, it didn't. Uh, what we did is we actually have probably, I mean, if we want to stay with the bucket analogy, we probably have about six or seven buckets. They're not separate bank accounts, but they're like things that we're working on. One is the emergency fund. We make sure we have that emergency fund full. We have a second thing is a, a intellectual property fund because I write books and so does Donna now. And so, and other things. So we have a, a bucket of money that is a certain amount. And that's what I dip into because these things aren't cheap. You know, every time you get an editor or graphics or publications and blah, blah, blah. So it really burrows down. But once you get these things done, they eventually start selling and the money starts trickling in. But it doesn't go into our life. It refills that intellectual property bucket. So there's a bucket going. We have an emergency fund. We have an intellectual property we have another bucket that we could conceive as paying off our debt. Understand it's not actually a bucket. We just pay it to the bank, but we're paying down our debt. And that one we use as God directs us. He said, pay off your second. Okay. Stop. Okay. Now what? Go to the other buckets. So we, you know, we start putting the money aside for college. We have kids in college now. And so we started retirement and we start putting those monies away. And then God says, oh, back to debt. Oh, okay. And so now we're working on our home mortgage. And before that, we'd paid off our cars and we paid off our credit cards. We always do that. But yes, ma'am. Yeah, my criteria for emergency bucket is I want to be able to get to it fast and I don't want it to be too much. You know, so theoretically... I'm content to have an emergency fund. I'll just arbitrarily throw numbers. If I have an emergency fund that's $5,000 and it's only earning a little teeny, teeny bit, I'm content with that because it keeps me from getting into an 18% borrowed condition. But I'm not comfortable that if my savings is $25,000 because I need to, whoa, there's 20 grand. I need to go put to work. Why do I need to put it to work? Because I'm trying to reach a million dollars. And i got to get that money working. I can't have it lazing, lazing around. So uh, what's interesting is the wealthy managing their money becomes their pastime. And they'd love it. You want to read a fascinating book on the wealthy, which I highly recommend. is called The Millionaire Mind by Thomas Stanley, Ph.D. It'll surprise you. Well, imagine it like this. Maybe, maybe I have uh, a rusty can in my backyard, and I have a hundred bucks in that. Maybe I have a. Um, savings account that's earning point zero 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 one, and I have $3,000 in that. And maybe I have another account, which is a money market account, that's maybe paying me 1.5% or 1%, and I maybe have, you know, 5000